Welcome to How Not to DM. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. A couple of housekeeping items, and then we'll get started. First of all, thanks to Gray underscore Jedi 505, Purple Melon 17, and Fun Pickmaker for their reviews of the show. If you'd like a shout out on my next episode, go leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or Podchaser. If you're looking for some ad space for your game, podcast, stream, homebrew content, TTRPG product, or creation, send me a message and we can talk about running something on my show. And now, a word from our sponsor. Dire Destiny Books reissues a classic adventure. Prepare yourself for the Tomb of Hagamoth Special Edition. An ancient story of a vast treasure and an old grudge long buried. What secrets will you learn on the road to fortune and glory? With 149 pages of new foes, items, and spells, now available on DMs Guild from Dire Destiny Books. The adventure continues at DireDestiny.com. Alright, that's it for the announcements. Let's jump into our guest intro. Today, I'm talking to Sean Sunday of Brainbeast Studios and Arkenforge. Sean has been playing TTRPGs for a few years now and is best known for seeing a need in the games he loves and filling it. His player's screen is designed for neurodivergent players, but also benefits anyone new to the game or who wants a quick reference to useful information needed to play. Sean also streams games frequently with awesome guests and has a few new projects he's working on for next year. He's also my first guest from Australia. Enjoy! I kind of got into D&D the long way around. I started playing like Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and Neverwinter Nights and reading all the Forgotten Realms books when I was a teenager without actually realizing that they were anything to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I started playing Hero Quest. My brother-in-law gave me a, his copy of Hero Quest from when he was a kid. And I started playing that with all my friends and then fast forward to like 10 15 years later i've lost that i buy a new copy for my birthday and start playing that with my partner and their friends and uh i discover paper minis and i'm like hey i want to make some of those those are cool and so i start designing some and then i start getting them 3d modeled with hero quest bases so i can print them out and start making my own custom hero quest minis and then the DD community started noticing them i was like ah dnd I'm not sure about that. Uh, with my ADHD, it looks a bit like it might be a stress for me. Ignored it for a while. And then as more D&D people started getting in, I was like, hey, one of my friends in the community is running a show. Let me have a look at this. Okay, this doesn't actually seem that hectic. All right, let's go get a starter kit. And so I got the starter kit and started playing with my partner and our friend Phil. And the rest was history. And that was in about 2018. Actually, this time. 2018 was when I went and bought that starter kit and we started playing in August. It's funny that you mentioned Baldur's Gate. I've actually had quite a few guests say that that's kind of how they got into the game as well. So I don't think your story is an uncommon one. I think that a lot of people kind of got into those medias first before they started playing themselves. But yeah, uh, yeah it's it's kind of amazing the impact that they've had on so many different people to kind of get into the hobby not later in life, but, but, you know, a few years on. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. And then this for me, like those books fueled my interest in fantasy and writing and, you know, 
it really informs the kind of comics that I like to read and write. And then when I started playing and I realized like, yeah, now I can play in that world. Forgotten Realms is still like, I've looked at other settings and I've played things from other settings, but Forgotten Realms was, is always going to have a special place in my heart. Yeah. So you started in 2018, you started playing. Did you start as the DM? Yes. The first game you mentioned, um, Heroes Quest, that's also a TTRPG, right? Yeah, it's it's sort of baby's first D and D because it is a TTRPG, but it's like board gamed, mm-hmm. and the quests only take a couple of hours to play each and stuff like that. So it's a really good like gateway drug to D and D because it's not much difference to go from Hero Quest to the D and D board games to full on D and D. Did they have this a similar concept of someone who's running the game and then the rest yeah, of the people yeah, are players? Yeah. yeah. And did you find yourself running a lot of those games as well? Oh, I loved running HeroQuest. It was, yeah. especially because it was so streamlined compared to D&D. Like, I could really sit down and find extra ways to throw things in and really mess with my players. I made a few standard quests and just swapped out a few doors for Mimics one in one game, and they were terrified to open any doors for hours. <laughs> Classic. You said you bought the starter kit in 2018, so tell us what that first experience was like running the game yourself it was interesting like it took a there was a lot of fumbles and you know not knowing the rules and pulling books out and looking stuff up at the table and stuff for a while but we had a good time like my partner has become the essentially if you've watched any dimension 20 shows you'll hear how much brennan gushes about emily axford robin is my emily axford they don't know the rules as much as anybody else that i've played with but the rules that they do know and the choices that they make as a character just fill me with joy. Sometimes they throw me for a complete loop, like the time I had to improvise a discussion about consent between their character and a Nothic, and now they're best friends with Kevin the Nothic. It was amazing. Yeah, anyone familiar with that encounter knows it, it kind of leaves it up to to the DM's discretion, right, to how to treat how the Nothic's going to act. So yeah. That being the uh, the course of action Robin chose to make, I'm sure made you. <laughs> I, I I can I can see how it'd be very disorienting. Yeah, I was all set for a combat encounter, and they ended up resolving it with hugs, giving them a name, and becoming buddies, and used the Nothic to look after the prisoners when they took some of the bugbears prisoner. And then you were just like, hey, we don't want anyone to use this hideout anymore after we're done here. How about we send you some meat every month and you make sure nobody else moves in? <laughs> this is something I love about published adventures that a lot of people have played through is no one does it the same way, right? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So the thing I love to ask people, you know, the whole premise of the show is what are some of the worst mistakes that you've made as a DM and what lessons have you learned from these mistakes? Well, the biggest one I can tell anyone is if you are looking at running an online game, whether that's a streamed game or just a personal game, make sure you've got a network cable attached to your computer. Don't try to do it on a laptop in the back room because that's going to make a mess. And if it's a live game, like my first live game was, that's going to be really interesting to try to fix on stream, running around the house and moving your entire setup from the studio to the lounge room so you can get a decent internet connection. That is valuable advice, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was a fun time. The game ended up going really well and it was really fun. 
um, had a great group of players and it was an adventure that I'd co-written. And so it was a really fun time. But yeah, just make sure that you have that. Even If you're running from a PC or a laptop, it doesn't matter. Make sure you've got an Ethernet cable and it's plugged into your computer. But honestly, I can't really think of anything else that I would class as a, like a big mistake. Uh-huh. More just small tips and tricks that I've picked up over time to make the experience easier for everyone. Yeah. I think we'll we'll chat about that when we're chatting about your screen specifically. So yeah, yeah. I think the the Ethernet cable is a great uh, a great answer to that question. That's one that no one else has given so far. So we'll yeah, I, honestly, that. that's the thing I think of as my biggest mistake as a DM. Anything else is just like standard. Oh no, I'm on live and I've forgotten something. Sort of fumbles, but that was a big one that I had no idea about at the time. I thought my Wi-Fi should be able to extend because I'd been streaming artwork. No worries. As soon as mm-hmm. you had five players and roll 20 going, that's a different story. Do you have a favorite monster or NPC or something you have used to challenge your players thus far? It could be pre-written. It could be something you made up. Yeah. Okay. So I've got a combination of, of that. I've got a pre-written one that I absolutely love, which uh, is James Intracasso's uh, Hag Malgums. I was running an adventure called Ooze There with Gabe James, Lion from Lionhead Gaming, Matt from Split the Party, Aram Vartian from God's Fall, and Greg from Dice Paper Roll. That's the one. All really good buddies of mine, and I have got a lot of time for them. And it was my second stream game, and so the internet struck again that day. And I completely lost all but like five minutes of the recorded footage, unfortunately. We got to play the game fine, and I think the people watching got to see it fine. As I had them sort of descend into the depths of this town that they were exploring after having dealt with a witch's familiar and fought a couple of mimics and some slimes, almost died to a gelatinous cube, they come into this section of corridor and hear sucking and popping sounds as this massive hag amalgam drops from the roof of this wet tunnel in, the, in front of them. Gabe ended up <laughs> actually casting... Um, blade barrier or something like that and just creating this force of whirling blades and just walked in and turned it into sushi but it did almost kill them first and that was a really exciting encounter as far as npcs go i've got two favorite npcs that i absolutely love to throw at people one again is is actually because of another game that greg our and matt were playing in and it was a pirate themed adventure and Aram decided in order to find where the bad guy had gone, he was playing a triton. And he was going to just stick his head in the water and ask the fish. <laughs> so Aquaman to, style. Yeah, I had to create a fish for him to talk to. And it ended up becoming one of my favorite NPCs that I try to sneak into every adventure I play somewhere now, which is Joey the Fishuation. And he's got a heavy, terrible Boston Jersey sort of accent. And he's super himbo bro I actually put him into my show, The Shifting Spire, as a major NPC. There's even a portrait of him that I had commissioned for the show that hangs on the wall of the the spire. And I just love playing Joey. He just gives me an excuse to heckle the players, but in a really good-natured way. A little good-natured ribbing. Yeah, and, and Joey's definitely one of my big favorites. The other one is one that has become one of my actual PCs that I play when I play Pathfinder now, which is Toblin the Goblin the Third Esquire. Because this is a family-friendly show, I'm not going to say too much in the, uh, the way of what Toblin <laughs> sounds like. 
but he he sounds a bit like this, and he's gonna you know he's gonna hit the frog and toad, go on a bit of an adventure, and if you don't like it, then you can shove off. He's very ocker. He's a hero. He's a very big-hearted, heroic little goblin, but he swears like there's no tomorrow, and he will tell you exactly what he thinks of you and your decisions. He's actually was invented in the adventure that I'm playing this weekend, but then I loved him so much that I've just put him in other things since because it was so much fun to play. My favorite creature that I created for the Shifting Spire was the Brick Mimic. They're generally like a swarm almost. And they'll invade a building and replace bricks and floor tiles. And they're almost imperceptible unless you've got a really high passive perception or are actively looking for them and can see the very, very vaguely translucent green saliva running down the wall that's acidic. So if you step on it, you will take acidic damage. And kind of as a swarm, all of the bricks will come out and then form into something that then attacks you. No, they, they, they sort of, they, the way they work is they'll take up residence about 15 feet away from each other in a wall and generally on opposite sides of the hallway. And so as you walk past, if you're within 10 feet, it'll reach out and whip you with a pseudopod. And then you, you go, oh no, and try to jump over to the other side and nothing happens. So you walk a little bit further and then something else on the other wall starts whipping you. And then obviously once you're dead, they'll come out and eat you. So that's actually a good segue into your other projects that I wanted to chat about. So Shifting Spire first, you mentioned uh, that these little brick mimics are in there. So what is the Shifting Spire? Where did you get the idea? And you know, how can people uh, find information about it? Okay, well, the Shifting Spire came out of HeroQuest again, actually. Um, some friends of mine created a really cool HeroQuest map called The Tower. And it's just a basic modular map there's one that's pre-populated or you can get it and print it out with all the modular tiles and then just endlessly replayable. It only comes with like basic instructions. It's got a counter on either side, one for the DM and one for the heroes. And the basic rule is that whatever side of the board the players start on, for however many players there are, there's three monsters per player that generate on the far side of the board and will start roaming the halls. And I was like, mm -hmm. oh, this is really cool. I want to play this, but as a story. So I started coming up with an idea for uh, a story for it so I could play a fun special game with my friends and then maybe turn it into a streamed hero quest game. And then as I started getting into d and I was like, I actually really love the idea that I've got done here. So when I finished writing the hero quest version, I could quite easily convert this into something for 5e. And so I started tinkering with that and then I designed a map and came up with an idea for it. And I'm like, I'm going to do this as a show. And then I thought, wait, no, not just a one-off. This could be something else. And I turned it into a competitive game show. So it's kind of like the adventure is being written proper now so that people will be able to buy it. Hopefully January, February, it'll be ready for publishing. Mm -hmm. and, um, it's going to go up on drive through to start with. Okay. And then I will probably, you know, if it, if people like it enough, I'll probably look at doing a Kickstarter for a hard copy version with printed maps and tiles and a hardcover version of the book and stuff. But I'm aiming to get it finished and ready for digital publishing by February-ish because I want to do another season of the show. I ended up ending the show early because I knew that my Kickstarter that was coming up was coming up and I had a few comics projects and actually writing these adventures and getting them published was my core goal for this year. So there's three episodes that are out so far. That's 18 hours of game because they're six-hour sessions. 
and I was really fortunate. I got to team up with some really amazing people for sponsors. So uh, Ark and Forge, where I work now, sponsored me a copy of their software so I could use it for making the maps and running the show, which worked out really well for me because running a show like that with ADHD, I don't want to run the risk of players accidentally moving their tokens somewhere. I'm not ready for them to move it yet and uncovering a secret. So I was able to keep control of all the tokens. <laughs> the core of the game itself is it's D&D meets Takeshi's Castle. So there's a mix of like genuinely horrific and, and pa uh, paranoia-inducing encounters where the players could very well die immediately. But then there's also just a bunch of silly crap that if they just... It could still kill them, but only if they make a really bad decision or roll terribly, which the mm -hmm. second team through did on the rolling log challenge. So they, they came around... A, a hallway and suddenly in the length of this hallway there's no floor there's just a bunch of big logs all the way along and now they decided that they would pick up their rogue who was quite small and try to toss him across to the other <laughs> side yeah and i was like okay but if you're going to do that you need to do two things you're going to roll me a strength check and a dexterity check and if you fail the dexterity check i'm going to tell you what happens and so they rolled really high, like an 18 on strength. And I think they rolled a nat 1 on decks. And so they threw him really far, straight up. Spikes? No. Bounced off the no. roof, landed on the rolling logs, and was just buffeted down the hallway, tossing and bouncing and turning and taking, you know, bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet or so that he was getting rolled along these rogs. Uh, and then... As they were starting to make their other plans and deciding if they were going to throw more people over, I had mercy. And I was like, hey, uh, everybody roll me a perception check. And one of them did roll really high. And I was like, oh, so you, out of the corner of your eye, notice a little glint next to the torch on the wall beside you. And you can see that there's a little chain with a ring on the end of it coming out of the base of this torch. And he pulled on it and floor came slotting out and covered the logs and they could safely walk across they'd been standing next to this chain for 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get across the logs and none of them had fought, thought to investigate this the torch sometimes puzzles you think are going to be obvious and then they aren't uh and sometimes you think that they're going to be really hard and oh, then yeah. they get them right away yeah it's funny but how that works the amount of times that Parties have done that and spent just a lot of time on something you didn't plan for. It happens all the time. It does. It uh, really does. It was fun, though. It was fun watching them try to puzzle it out. Are you hungry for fortune and glory? Then follow the clues to the Tomb of Hagamoth. Join the hunt for a treasure great enough to tempt even the most jaded adventurer. Dire Destiny Books presents an adventure for four to six characters starting at level three and ending at level nine with entertaining monsters, traps, and unique treasures for you to encounter across a dozen thrilling locations. Available on DMs Guild from Dire Destiny Books, and the adventure continues at DireDestiny.com. You mentioned Ark and Forge, that you were using that for the game that you've been playing. So tell us a little bit about Ark and Forge and what your job is there and, and what, what it's all about. Ark and Forge is a cartographer slash VTT. The VTT functions in Arkenforge currently have been designed to be focused on in-person play using like digital tables. 
Uh, so you can, as a DM, you run the game from your laptop connected to your screen table. Everyone can put their real minis and tokens and stuff on there if you want, but you've got all the animated effects and maps and traps and all that sort of stuff happening on that table. I like it for online play for stream games because of that fact that because it's designed for in-person play like that, the DM controls everything on the, the table at this point. Players don't have a client to log in and do that. That's something that's being added in for more online play. Um, we're actually developing a player's toolkit. The, the map making and game running thing is called the master's toolkit and it has different modules in it. The cartographer, the encyclopedia, soundscape, etc. Uh, and we're working on a player's toolkit app that's in development that'll allow the players to log in and control their tokens on the table themselves as well so that we can have that online functionality as well. My favorite thing about it is that for online play, for people who do want their players to have control of their tokens and stuff like that, like it's a very, very powerful map making tool. And that's what got me into it. And I reached out to them and said, hey, I'm doing this thing. I want to use this. Do you want to get involved and partner up and sponsor it somehow? And so they gave me a copy of the software and each of the people that played got a basic copy of the software and the essentials assets. So that was just for playing. They got a free copy of the software and, and the basic assets. And then the winning team, every member of the team got the complete bundle, the full copy of the software and all of the assets that we've currently released, which is like a hundred bucks per person for that. 100 US too, oh. so that's like 180 Australian. And so I was like, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And so obviously, you know, this year when they turned around and said, hey, we're looking for someone to do marketing. Do you want a job? Yes, yes. Please let me hype this product that I'm such a big fan of. And so like with all of that, that map making and all that animated stuff and the lighting effects and even sound effects and stuff that we can do, we export to almost every one of the major tabletops, including Foundry, Fantasy Grounds, Roll20. You can build your full custom map in Arkenforge and then just go to export and select which VTT you want to export to. And it will send it with all the light barriers and all the animated tokens and everything into that format. And then you can just fire up your VTT and pull the map in. Nice. That's very useful. That's cool that they, um, number one, were so willing to help you out when you're planning on your game. And then number two, you know, that that led to a job. You never know what connections you're going to make. Yeah. And that segues nicely into the third thing I want to ask you about, which is your player's screen. You know, th this is kind of the initial thing that you showed me a few months ago. You sent me a copy of it and I printed it off for some of my players to use, you know, especially as a few of the players in my game are newer so it was really helpful for them but talk us through where the idea came for this player screen you know what kind of problems you're looking to solve with it and uh where you want to take it next yeah well it it literally came from that first game with robin and phil you know i've got adhd and i don't know if you know a lot about adhd but for anyone listening that doesn't adhd autism and other neurodiversities like that one of the symptoms that we commonly share is uh short-term memory issues uh, ADHD specifically comes with a really annoying one. Uh, I nicknamed it the lockbox, but it's sort of this thing where you could be an expert in your field, but the second somebody unexpectedly asks you for a specific piece of information about that topic, you know you know it, but you can't get at it. And a lot of times things like that happen on stream in the middle of a game. Mm -hmm. I know I know the answer to this, but where is it? 
And my partner has ADHD and autism. We've had other players in our group with anxiety and stuff like that. And, you know, a symptom of anxiety generally isn't short-term memory issues, but it can cause them when it's ramped up. When you're having a high yeah. amount of anxiety, it can cause that same sort of issue. Uh, and mm-hmm. there's another thing with ADHD especially, but not, uh, but also, you know, autistic people can have this as well, which is um, object permanence issues because it's, it's directly connected to that sort of short-term memory thing. If we can't see it, it's not there, which is why ADHD people are always losing our phones, our keys, our wallets, whatever, because we've put it down in a spot that we don't usually put it. And then we won't even see, we could walk past it 10 times and we won't even see it because our brain won't recognize it's there. It is the most annoying thing in the world. And so when we were starting to play and we're trying to use cheat sheets and, you know, all that sort of stuff, we printed them off and we put them on the table. They're not in our field of view. So they're not getting used because we forget to pick them up and look at them. We Mm -hmm. forget that they're there. They get flipped over and notes are written on the back and it wasn't working. So I was like, well, I've got this big bloody DM screen here. Let me hit drive through RPG and grab a player screen. Obviously that's got to be a thing, right? And I looked and I looked and I looked and all I could see was cheat sheets to print out and glue on the outside of your DM screen. I'm like, what is the point of that? If you have five people at a table, only the two people on your left and right are going to be able to actually read that. Especially if you have like people with even the slightest little bit of vision impairment or dyslexia, they're not going to be able to read that from a meter and a half to two meters away at the end of the table. So I was like, well, I'm going to make something that's going to work for us, for our group. And so I started knocking together some things, started asking a bunch of people like, hey, fellow autistic people, fellow ADHD people, what are things for D&D as a player that you think are super, super important to be able to remember at all times? And started doing a bit of research, knocked together a concept, printed it out, sent some photos to my mates. And they're like, I want one of those. Can you make that? Dude, you should make this. Is, is it, Are you allowed to make this? So like, I don't know, maybe. Looked up open gaming license, looked up the SRD, spent a couple of months making sure that all the content in it met the requirements of the open gaming license. And then it's like, to Indiegogo we go, I guess. And we we set it up. We still managed to fund and I made a thousand pieces. And so we sold out by November last year out of that thousand. I was like, okay, well, let's do another run in the new year. And so I started looking into doing that. And then I decided to just take a chance, uh, a bit of extra time and make a few improvements to it this time around. Just minor things. Like I changed the texture of the background um, so that the writing stands out even more. I put a bit of color in behind the dice diagram so that they would stand off with higher contrast on the page as well. I cut the leveling guide at level 10 instead of going all the way to level 20 because you know by the time you're up to level 10 you that's about as high as a lot of people go if you're mm-hmm. playing like high level D, then you already know how many xp that you need and you're probably doing milestone by then so we halved that and moved it down and i put a little scroll on there instead with you know may the dice be ever in your favor and that space that i created was designed so that I could fit the little laser-cut miniature dice tower that my friends at Glowcraft made on there without covering up anything important. And so when I did that, I was like, hey, Glowcraft, you want to partner up on this and actually include these in the Kickstarter? And so we did, and then that ended up being really cool. And then we actually ended up going a step further and included the dice tower that they designed for me for the Shifting Spire of the Shifting Spire itself in some of the deluxe packages. And then they designed a laser-cut folding version of the screen itself i 
was so blown away by that when he sent me the photos. I thought for sure it was going to be some kind of clip together situation because of the thickness of the wood and everything. But he designed these amazing hinges so it actually folds up completely just like the proper card ones do. And it was unbelievable. And then we funded in 10 hours for the Kickstarter. I was blown away by that. We were like 75% of the way there in an hour and a half from the launch party. I was just couldn't believe it. We had the little Kickstarter counter in the overlay and it was just going, just ticking up. I was like, wow, okay, people do really love this. And then by the following weekend, we hit our first stretch goal, which is for a Pathfinder version. Because I've had a lot of people asking me if I was going to do other systems, and especially Pathfinder, even especially Bill uh, at Beetle and Grimm's, who I, I sent them a set of the screens when we first started chatting and getting to know each other. And he said, like, I love this. Please make me a Pathfinder version. You would think that, like you said, you, you were like, surely something like this exists already, right? Someone has thought of this, and then it hadn't. So it's it's really amazing that, number one, you thought of it. Number two... When you realized it didn't exist, you took the initiative to put it together. Uh, I think that the fact that the Kickstarter funded so quickly and that it's been such a success is because there is such a need for this. And, you know, even though a lot of the players I've played with might not be neurodivergent, I still see a huge benefit for newer yeah. players who are unsure of their actions to be able to exactly. see everything laid out in front of them. Yeah I, yeah, I love this idea. And that's it. Like, I designed it. All of the design specifications, like the font that I chose, how things are laid out and stuff like that, were designed with neurodivergent players in mind. And it was inspired by my experience as a neurodivergent player. I designed it to help everyone because I knew that I've got friends that aren't even neurodivergent. When I showed it to them, like, yeah, holy crap, I forget to do this, this, and this. I always get confused about this. Yes, please do this. And I've, I've had veteran players that have been playing since second edition go, yeah, I want this. I'm, I'm, I know the rules backwards and forwards, but I want this so I don't have to be spending that energy trying to remember all of that knowledge. And especially like for people who have played multiple editions, it's going to be easy to get those rules modeled up in a hurry. And so the, that was the other thing was that my core tenet when designing it as well was to make sure that it was information that was re relevant to any player at any time regardless of what kind of character you're playing so there's no character specific or class specific information on there mm -hmm. it's all just core rule stuff that is relevant no matter what level you're playing at and what race class subclass whatever you're playing yeah um eventually i do want to do like some panels that can clip onto the edges for class and race specific stuff. What I'm probably going to do with that would be just like just levels one to three, because obviously once you get past level three, you start getting subclass rules. And, that's, yeah, and then that's too many. Yeah. That, yeah. That starts changing and stuff like that. So I want to make them yeah. so that it's the core information, like a barbarian's rage does this, this, and this, and all of that stuff that doesn't change even at high levels, it's still the same effect. Yeah. Um, I definitely see a use for that too, for sure a great idea yeah that's a that's a long-term addition that i want to do though once i've done a couple of other systems uh, yeah. and i did start working this the other just the day before yesterday on the 80 hdm screen so I, as soon as I, I designed this for players but then I, I was looking at the wizard of the coast dm screen while i was designing it going there's stuff on my player screen that's not on this screen that i always need as a dm and there's so much art and little swirly bits and all this sort of stuff on it, it looks amazing 
but I can't find what I need when I need it because all of that visual information is confusing and distracting to my ADHD brain. Mm. So I'm going to make a version that is as clean and crisp and clearly laid out as the player screen, but with more information specific to DMs. What are your parting words of wisdom and encouragement for new and aspiring DMs? And then also people who want to create something in the TTRPG space or even the comic space, you know, that kind of thing. For DMs, it's just try it. Seriously, just just try it. Don't stress. You know, we all mess up the rules at first. We all forget how things work. The focus is on just facilitating a fun story and a fun game with your friends. Don't worry about being perfect. But my core thing, especially for other neurodivergent DMs, is if you try it that first time and you're like, cool, I like this. I want to keep doing this. That is when you need to do a few things to make your life easier. And this is advice that can cost you money, but doesn't have to. There are free versions of everything available as well, but they are limited because they only meet the SRD and OGL requirements. Is get yourself spell cards so that you can quick reference spells that your players have. Like if your players have all got different classes and they have specific spells and you're going to have spell casting monsters and NPCs, get spell cards and pre-prep them ahead of time. You know, if you know that you're playing with these four players every game for this game, bundle up those spells so that you can reference them in a hurry if your player can't for some reason so that you can help everyone out ideally players will memorize as much of their stuff as they can but new players even older players but especially neurodivergent players aren't always going to be able to do that because our brains don't work the same way we will forget stuff we will leave stuff at home by accident um, we'll try our hardest to memorize everything ahead of time. Be patient. Don't expect your player to be ready to go immediately with a fully laid out plan of attack on their turn. Because again, when it comes to neurodivergent people, we could have spent 15 minutes watching everybody else and planning our turn. And then as soon as you ask us to go, the lockbox happens. And that entire 15 minutes of planning is gone. And also the entire past 15 minutes of the game is gone it's not that we haven't been paying attention but it's gone we can't remember what just happened so if a player asks you oh sorry what just happened just give them a quick recap don't begrudge it don't be resentful it's not necessarily most of the time i find 85 percent of the time at least when a player asks you a question like that it's not because they haven't been playing paying attention it's because something has gone on in their brain and they've lost the information for some reason. And you don't know. I've had so many DMs go, well, none of my players are neurodivergent. In the same breath of explaining my player does this, 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 and this, which are all clear neurodivergent traits. It's like your player might not know they're neurodivergent. There are so many undiagnosed people out there because one, the media doesn't show information about neurodiversity very well or accurately it's really hard to get a diagnosis and it presents differently from amab to afab people so your players might not even know that they have a neurodivergent condition so just treat everyone as if that could be happening and you're gonna find you have a kinder calmer more engaged and happy time for everyone involved i treat everyone at my table 
as if they're neurodivergent when it comes to those things. I don't assume that somebody is on their phone because they don't want to play and they're not enjoying the game. I assume that they're probably stimming or maybe looking up some information to plan their next turn. Mm -hmm. If they've forgotten something and they need to ask for a quick recap, I just give it. I should be like, yeah, so here's a dynamic and interesting little recap of what just happened and what do you want to do now? If a player is just very, very new and they can't think of what to do on their turn, maybe just guide them a little bit. Like, hey, you're a spellcaster and I know that you have this spell. If you did something like this, you might be able to do one of these four things. And they will go, that sounds really cool and that gives me an idea because if I do that, then this player can do this and we can do a really cool team up. You know, and it just makes it more fun for everybody. I see so many DMs on Reddit and Facebook and stuff talking about setting timers on their players. If you don't (laughs) have your turn decided in this many seconds, then your turn gets skipped. That is really mean. And that makes it not fun for anyone. And especially if your player is neurodivergent and they just haven't felt comfortable to tell you yet or don't know that they are yet, that is going to really, really, really hurt them. It's going to traumatize them. You know, that might sound dramatic to some people, but that's what it is. Trauma isn't just one big horrific event that happened. Trauma builds up from small thing to small thing to small thing to small thing. And if it's all the same small thing that keeps happening, then that's going to leave them to believe that something they're doing is wrong. And they're going to leave the game. And that's going to be really sad for everyone. We've lost someone from the community. And they've lost this thing that they really love and want to do. So try not to make snap assumptions like that about your players. Try to treat everyone as if maybe they've got a memory issue. Maybe they've got a concentration issue. And just guide people through the game. It's not your job to play the game for them. But I think of a DM as a guide, not just a facilitator. You have the majority of the rules of the game on that board in front of you. It's not that hard to just give a player a little nudge if they need a little help, and it makes everybody's day feel better. I think there's a lot to be said for being more kind and more understanding instead of less less those things, more accommodating, more, you know, what, whatever it might be, because like you said, it's all about having a good time, and it really doesn't yeah. take that much extra effort to, to extend that to everybody. Exactly. You can go onto my drive through RPG and get the 5e player screen for free the first version right now while the kickstarter is on after the kickstarter you'll be able to get the pdf for two bucks and print it out if you can't afford to buy one from my store because with shipping and everything there are american retailers who are going to be stocking it uh tabletop loot stocks it right now the 2.0 screen is going out to a bunch of american and canadian retailers i'm going to be putting together a list of those to go on my etsy and website so if you can't afford to get it from me you will be able to find someone local who gets it. And that still supports me because if they sell out, they have to buy more from me. But if you can't afford that, two AUD, right? That's like 80 cents American. You can buy that PDF, print it out at home, and assemble it for your players. And even if they're not neurodivergent, it's going to be helpful. Don't stress about voices. If you play online a lot, actually, something really, really cool that is free that I love using is two tools. One is voice mod. I have the pro version, which is paid. Um, and actually, I got re- I was really lucky to get invited to be a voice mod partner. But they have a free version. And it's just got a whole like soundboard full of voices that you can just click. And you set that as your microphone. And you can use it for demon voices, high-pitched squeaky voices, robot voices, 
all that sort of stuff without you having to actually do a voice. Mm. And then the other one is Snapcam, which again is free. And you use that and set that as your webcam instead of just a plain webcam. And then you've got AR masks with all kinds of faces that you can use. <laughs> it, it doesn't work on podcasts, but he just did a goblin face. Now he's got the, a monocle and a mustache. This is sweet. I'm going to have you send all of these links and I'll put these in the episode notes. I will. I will. I, I, I absolutely recommend those two things top mm-hmm. rate. Since I started using them, they have just upped the production quality of my shows with very, very minimal effort. Especially if you're a DM who's a little nervous about that. If you can hide behind a filter, changing your, what your face looks like, and a voice mod, that will help you dip your toe without having to go whole hog on learning to do accents and voices and stuff like that. Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I really appreciate you taking the time talking with us about accessibility and about some of your uh, you know, your best moments behind the screen. So it's been awesome and well, uh, really look me. forward to seeing what you... Uh, what you cook up next they really appreciate you having me as well like taking time out of your thursday night uh it's really fantastic to be on the show i've been like watching your posts for ages and listening to a few episodes so it was a thrill to finally actually sit down and talk to you yeah all right well thanks so much no worries thank you thanks for listening to how not to dm If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe and recommend it to your friends and family around your TTRPG table. My intro and outro music is by my good friend Torin, aka Mr. Tape. Ad music is from Arcane Anthems. Check out their free library of TTRPG music. And until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.